Hello everyone, Dallas Rogers here and welcome back to this year's Festival of Urbanism and City Road Podcast Book Club. It is really great to have you along. We've got an exciting collection of conversations with authors and readers this year and all the details are on the City Road Podcast website at cityroadpod.org and we've got a lot of great book interviews there for you. And today I'm talking with Megan Nethercote about her new book, Inside High Rise Housing, Securing Home in Vertical Cities. And I'm talking with Megan on Zoom and I start by asking her, what is your book about? Mm. Okay, so I might answer that by starting with some background on what motivated me to write this book. Uh, So I moved to Melbourne after nearly two decades abroad and not too long after that, uh, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, I witnessed this incredible boom in high-rise development in and around the CBD. So Melbourne had pretty permissive planning arrangements at the time, but this vertical expansion obviously wasn't unique to Melbourne. Uh, Lots of cities around the world were seeing their skylines littered with cranes. So we hit this peak in the condo boom in Melbourne around 2016. Um, By then, Australia was really building more condos than houses. So it's left us with this quite incredible uh, rate of skyscraper per capita for such a suburbanised nation. Uh, So these developments were tall. Um, The tallest were around 100 storeys, large, like two-thirds of them contained upwards of 200 units. And some of them were premium developments, but the bulk of them were so-called investor-grade stock, So this is being marketed uh, and sold to mum and dad investors. So in Melbourne, design quality was quickly outed as a significant issue. Units had poor daylighting, poor passive ventilation. Uh, They lacked visual and acoustic privacy. Uh, Many of the towers had tiny units. These excessively deep floor plans, uh, snorkel bedrooms that relied on borrowed light. Uh, And later we've learnt that there's also been some systemic uh, build quality issues as well. So lots of defects, leaking, cracking, creaking buildings, poor workmanship uh, and concerns about facade systems as well. So there were some euphemistic references to uh, natural growing pains of this vertical expansion. Um, But what we've been stuck with is some pretty average uh, high-rise housing. Uh, So this is all happening on my doorstep and I was fascinated by the political economies and the the lived realities of this development. My own first experience of high-rise living was worlds away from this, in a 24-storey Soviet-era tower block in Moscow. But that had left me intrigued about the politics and economics and how they drove designs and how that ultimately uh, shaped high-rise experiences. So during my postdoc in Melbourne, I developed a research program around those interests. Uh, And I should say that these high-rise homes have a distinct legal architecture. So that's condominium or strata title, uh, as as it's called in Australia. And I became really interested in what this meant, especially for renters, because renters are typically barred from participating in condo governance, though it, of course, uh, affects them. So I knew that half of uh, Australian apartment residents were renters and that private renters endured short leases, they had uh, under-maintained properties, weak tenant protections. But we really lacked data on the Australian high-rise experience. And even internationally, there was really little limited understanding of condo renting. Uh, So I set out to explore this uh, unique fusion of the tower typology uh, and the legal architecture of condominium. And I wanted to provide a more systematic account of the high-rise home. 
So I wanted to provide an account of what condominium actually is in situ in the lives of high-rise residents uh, and then trace how that informed uh, residents' homemaking. So I lean on property as a conceptual tool to achieve that, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into. But I wanted to show how residents perceive and interpret this particular form of property ownership and how those understandings shape their, their everyday routines. And part of that, I wanted to understand the social and legal frames around how residents acted and interpreted uh, other residents' actions as reasonable or not reasonable. So we conducted over 100 interviews uh, in Melbourne and Perth with condo residents uh, as part of an international study on high-rise design quality. And those uh, interviews provided these incredible first-hand accounts of the lived realities of this expansion, and that allowed me to cross the threshold, so to speak, uh, to take the reader on a tour, uh, kind of chapter by chapter of the condo building uh, from the private unit through to the shared amenities. And one of the stops on this tour, for instance, uh, is the private unit's borders. Uh, so I look at like how residents deal with all manner of incursions from innocuous cooking smells to harmful smoke infiltration to visual overlooking, nuisance noise, and all of this mostly in the absence of any social interaction. Uh, and I home in on how residents perceive and manage these uh, intrusions. Another chapter looks at shared amenities and what makes the, you know, that are needed to make units uh, accessible and functional homes. So the lifts, but also the service infrastructures, the rubbish chutes, the plumbing, the electric wiring. And I point out various circulation frictions as people, pets and rubbish and parcels and all sorts of other matter move around the condo shared infrastructure. So along this tour, I kind of clarify the series of pressure points on condo homemaking. Uh, and shed light on the everyday joys and pitfalls of high-rise living from the amazing views to the Airbnb nuisance. And point out that there's often uh, not a lot of social interaction between residents and that residents tend to interpret other residents' actions as deriving from kind of unthinking and selfish acts, leading owners and renters alike to blame nameless and faceless renters for everything and anything from clogging the bin chutes to the noise to being lax about security. The book captures how renters are cast as unruly and risky residents and, and bad neighbours. And what the book highlights then is renters' kind of unique experience of stigma and discrimination within the condo, which I see as part of this wider story of renters' struggles to make a home in the city, which kind of remains at the heart of my current work. So I preface the book with an excerpt from um, Ballard. He wrote um, High Rise, which is a 1975 dystopian sci-fi classic uh, set in this 40-storey condo tower in outer London with this main character, Dr Robert uh, Lang, who moves into this uh, unit on the 25th floor. And the condo has all these flashy amenities and conveniences and gradually the residents lose interest in the outside world, they quit their jobs, they become permanently holed up in this tower uh, and the occupants forego all their standard social etiquette and they become absorbed in this escalating violence between the residents. And it gets pretty barbaric. The building begins to fall apart, bodies pile up, but no one tries to leave or alert the police. And you've got these residents exploring all their newfound urges and kind of basis desires. And they're staking out territories, the hallways, the amenities, and in the, in the process kind of controlling how residents move around. Um, you've got all these distinct clan identities emerging, the underdogs, the middle class, the elites. Uh, so my book begins with a passage from Ballard that captures some of this madness. And it's a useful entry into my work. I'm certainly not insinuating that there's 
it's direct parallels by any means, but it's a captive visual for some of the themes that run through my book, uh, such as territoriality, sense of ownership, community, social relations, and that are all going on behind these blank facades. And high-rise housing has kind of long captured our imagination. We can think of all manner of other kind of literary and cinematic and media and, and academic uh, representations. Yeah, so that's actually really handy because this is a podcast about books. And so I like that we're talking about your book, but we're also talking about another book within your book in this podcast. Let's move on to another idea. And it's an idea that has got a fair bit of traction in at least urban geography over the last little bit of time. And it's kind of around vertical urbanism, which kind of goes together with volumetric urbanism. And so it's a tradition that kind of saw some fault lines in our thinking around the flat plane of the city and the expanding suburbs. And this theory really tries to deal with the extension of urban space up into the sky and not just up in a point, but these kind of volumetric spaces that extend up into the sky. And of course, strata, tidal and apartments are a key part of that. How does your work kind of work with these ideas, particularly around housing and airspace? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as you said, there's been this so-called vertical turn in geography with scholars reacting to what they see as this kind of pervasive horizontalism. Uh, vertical urbanism research really tries to go beyond um, some of the bird's eye view accounts. And in my research, it's partly been about seeing the tower from the inside out and about hearing the voices of those within. Um, but in terms of how it relates back to high-rise development, much of this work on the condo development boom that's been going on um, in lots of places around the world um, kind of framed it as a collision between economic and cultural forces so between the development industry and state interests and then what city residents or consumers want. Um, people like uh, Randy Lippert have used the term condoization, which then brings condominiums' legal architectures into sharper view in this dynamic. So we've got to remember that behind all this very striking vertical expansion, there's been these other less visible changes taking place. So that's involved... Uh, condominium or strata title uh, that's provided this legal architecture to revolutionise how we've, we've been buying and selling these airspace lots above our standard city lots. So traditionally, co common law has been quite expansive and vague in defining these three-dimensional land ownership boundaries. And some of this ambiguity was addressed early in the 20th century with the advent of air rights or airspace parcels, which defined a volumetric parcel, whether or not occupied by a building, um, with the same legal status as conventional interests in land. And then uh, in the 1960s, condominium was introduced through statutory reform, and it mimicked some of the principles and legal attributes of these prior allowances so that where once there was only this single freehold title on a city lot, there can now be hundreds and thousands of titles. Um, with these spatial units of ownership no longer limited to a standard lot, condominiums suddenly provide this legal mechanism to really increase the density in land ownership. So condominium legislation passed quite seamlessly. Um, and in Australia, there's this fascinating history where the, the New South Wales Conveyancing Act or the Strata Title Act was introduced in 1961 and it was described as made in Australia but manufactured by land lease because of their, their subsidiaries' role in finessing and funding this legislation. 
So the commercial interest in condominium was kind of crystal clear. And then political elites were enthused uh, because it enabled smaller, more affordable interests in land. And with that, the means to expand the property owning franchise to a broader base. So in short, condominium legislation kind of gave shape to these relations that existed between politics and economics at the time. And the the condominium legislation was also kind of met with fascination and disbelief because it was seen to kind of essentially unfasten land as a legal category from the surface of the earth um, or what some called land without earth or property in thin air. So unlike freehold titles, which usually define through a single geometric plane, condominium relies on this, um, the physicality of the building itself to achieve the volumetric founding. So your individual property interest encompasses everything between coats of paint on your boundary wall, creating what is essentially nothing more than kind of a legal fiction. So everything in the tower besides the airspace parcels is common property, so the walls, insulation, the fire stairs. And when you are when you purchase a condo, you're really purchasing the private unit and then this undivided fractional share in the, the tower and the land. And with that, you've got this common property that then needs to be managed and a collective governance structure is needed. So condominium really represented this distinct form of private property ownership that was reconfiguring the social relationships between those who own and make their home in the high-rise. And amongst the condo owners, there was, of course, plenty of potential for tensions between incompatible lifestyles and financial means and differing priorities while sharing this sizable financial risk and these collective um, responsibilities and often living together in kind of close proximity. Then the absentee owner kind of complicates that dynamic because they're typically interested in capital appreciation and collecting rent uh, rather than the condo as a home. And then the condo dynamics are kind of further complicated by the renter who rents from them and who can't participate in condo governance. So I should add that like condo is usually developed and marketed and sold to consumers as just another form of individualised property ownership. And the details that those campaigns kind of gloss over are the things I really wanted to pay attention to in my approach. So just to loop back to Lippert's term, that condoization, it's really useful conceptually for kind of insisting on the way that how condos are produced and consumed and governed by owners corporations really shapes the property practices that are going on inside Um, and the first few chapters of my book kind of give all that essential what I see is essential background. Mm -hmm. Just was thinking as you were talking about settler colonialism and land theft and just how the settler colonial process first basically stole the land and then basically stole the sky and then commercialize the sky. It's a it's an interesting dynamic. And it kind of takes me to another set of themes that run through your book that I like. And this is this dual set of ideas around working with territory and working with the law, which is kind of what we've already been talking about. How do those ideas sort of run through the book? Mm. So to answer that, I'll just quickly give some background on property. So when I'm talking about property, I'm seeing that as a relationship between people with regards to a valuable resource. So you might think of that like the asymmetrical relationship between a renter and a landlord over their rental home. Uh, And I knew I wanted this account to get into those finer details uh, of property in condominium and how that informed high-rise living. Um, And the law certainly has things to say about what property means in condominium. 
Um, we can observe those meanings in con condo dissolution regimes, which I won't get into, but suffice to say that it's clear that the legal sphere and the legislation and the court rulings aren't the lone kind of arbiter of property and its definitions. So look to legal geography and uh, socio-legal studies where there's relatively more discussion about property and its lived socio-legal context. Uh, and there I found a lot of tools to examine uh, how condo residents understand and practice property in the tower. I, I talk about property as practiced. It's how we occupy and inhabit and care for places. Um, and these practices can be really modest and hidden in plain sight. It could be a resident screening their balcony or installing a security camera, ordering kids to stop playing in the lobby. Um, and they can be practices that are routine, um, ritualised like gardening or maintenance. So how and how we perform property can be motivated by social pressures or pride of ownership, um, or it can be more practical. It can be about negotiations, you know, about upgrading the lift system or, you know, reviving a neglected shared space. We mostly tend to think about property as either strictly private or strictly public, but these practices can have qualities that are associated with private interests like privacy and autonomy, but at the same time they can have qualities that are related to other regarding interests. And that kind of nuance and complexity turned out to be really apt in explaining what common property in condominium was in residents' everyday lives. And property is also suited as a kind of relational component in clarifying owner-renter relations, uh, which I was interested in. I should say that we didn't actually ask residents anything about property in the interviews, but we had asked extensively about their everyday routines of apartment living and their um, habitual practices. And so inadvertently, they turned out to be very sensitive to, uh, to property. So it's a little bit of background on property uh, so I can answer your question. Just on that, like it's not surprising that people, when you ask them about their lived experience in a privately organised high-rise tower that is completely defined by notions of public and private space, that actually property defined how they thought about those things. Because I imagine that actually a lot of the tensions were over, you know, the division between public and private space and those things. So, and that, I guess that just goes back to the idea that in Australia, territory and property kind of define our lives at the level of like habitation. So, Absolutely. Yeah. It's such a subconscious thread through our lives. So yes, I think not asking it directly is, is a very, uh, a very effective way of getting to the bottom of it. So I approached the tower as a property landscape and there I'm guided by geographer Nicholas Blomley's wonderful work and the way he describes property operating through these interlocking workings of law and territory. So workings of law first, I'm interested in more than just the, the condo bylaws. I'm interested in how the, that kind of formal law is implicated with the culture of legality and normative ideas and frameworks, including things like the conviction that home ownership bestows this complete control over our home as castle. Um, and I'm interested uh, in the kind of de facto rules that operate above and beyond the, the bylaws that are self-generated in each building. So on the one hand, I'm approaching the high rise this regulated home space and I'm looking at how residents self-regulate their transgressions or how they fake compliance. Uh, but I'm also looking at uh, the condo, how the condo bylaws interconnect with local norms. Um, and here I understand the residents as having some agency to shape those laws through their strategies like snitching and boundary work where residents kind of collectively demarcate some social boundaries about what's acceptable and what's not. 
And then these workings of law interlock with territory to help stabilise property relations. So territories kind of produce and reproduce through everyday property practices and it serves three purposes. It kind of classifies what's ours, it communicates our intentions, like keep out signwood, and then it enforces these claims. So, again, territory doesn't need to marry up with the letter of the law. It really depends on how residents interact um, and revise those formal property relations. So suppose we're thinking about the shared spaces in that case. Some of the territorial claims were as innocuous or temporary as like a Christmas wreath hung on the door of a condo unit or a pram left in the lobby, but they still reveal this resident sense of ownership over these shared spaces, for instance. So in the book, I try and think about territory in three dimensions, thinking about the borders around the private units, the floors, the walls and ceilings, rather than as these sharp lines on architectural plans, as I've alluded to. These workings of law and territory interconnect in that sense. So territory, territorial claims that are typically accepted um, tend to reflect those unspoken social norms and normative understandings about how space should be used. And I, and I call those kind of the local working rules. Um, and to make that a little less abstract, in Chapter 6, there's in one Melbourne apartment, I get into the details of this shared courtyard with units wrapped around it. And one of the women in the adjoining units has placed some pot plants and sun shading out on this on this shared terrace and she sort of made it her own. Um, we spoke to several residents in the building, including the woman in question, and they all had these very differing views about the legitimacy of these dynamics that were going on in the courtyard. Their views were partly informed by building management's inaction, uncertainty about their own entitlements, confusion because there was no social interaction between anyone. Um, and I discussed how this sort of fuels residents' frustrations and resentment at times. So, the book captures and kind of air quotes the good and, and bad condo neighbour and how they're constructed through these very property practices. And this is it's quite intuitive really when we think of suburban um, settings, for instance, where the kind of air quotes good neighbour emerges from those very acts of building and maintaining fences, not before and not after, um, simply by demonstrating their willingness to abide with what's perceived as, you know, the local neighbouring norms. Mm. Your book really, as you say, is about being inside the high rise and, and looking out, I think you said before. What is it like to make home in one of these, you know, at times falling down, cracking, creaking, I think you said, I like that term, not, not, not altogether falling down, but certainly leaking and creaking. Yeah, so my book explores how, how it is that these residents practice property and then how that, that goes on to shape their homemaking. And chapter two does some of the kind of heavy lifting of trying to connect property and home. Um, but in terms of the workings of territory, I kind of show that there's a series of territorial constraints, I call them, um, incursions, kind of annexations of shared space and circulation frictions that residents face. Um, and then in terms of the workings of law, there's all these local working rules over and above the private regulations that govern the sights and sounds and smells of um, and materialities even of, of condo homemaking, like whether you can choose to lay a timber floor or not. So even deep within residents' private units, there's a level of control that's not um, that we don't think of as much in detached homes. So these local working rules reflect how condo property comes freighted with social expectations and obligations to others. 
And residents understand these working rules in terms of doing the right thing, but also in terms of being shunned for not not conforming. And this sort of raises questions for residents, like should the shoe rack or the doormat belong in in the shared hallway? Or should the kids' scooters be left in the front entrance? And these workings of of law and territory then kind of choreograph this extensive form of volumetric neighbouring, I call it, that goes on kind of between these residents who have these extensive um, interdependencies alongside these quite intensive uh, physical proximities, including overhead and underfoot, alongside these illegible, usually kind of ambiguous and and often porous borders uh, between their units, and then these shared spaces where the ownership is really quite ambiguous and residents are confused about their entitlements. And residents really navigated a lot of this in the dark, so to speak. There's really a surprising lack of uh, social interaction, Um, although I would say some buildings do use WhatsApp and and there is more um, digital connection. And that renters in particular are often excluded from these networks uh, in any case. But in practical terms, residents adapted. On the one hand, residents have entered the condo with quite traditional property expectations of their home. They want privacy and control and autonomy. Um, But they also mostly recognise that other regarding practices are essential in making their condo building work as a shared space, whether that's actually motivated by a sense of reciprocity or by a sense of social obligation. But in any case, residents adapt, um, and this is all relatively inconsequential. They might close their blinds and forfeit their view if they're aware of their their neighbours' lines of sight or social expectations surrounding visual privacy. But often um, far more compromise or tolerance is required, especially where the condo design and the workmanship are subpar, Um, whether that's dealing with the neighbours smoking or infiltrating their apartments or various other issues. And local working rules or the social norms that govern high-rise living are often really ambiguous. So residents question the type of conduct that's appropriate when domestic activities are so readily overheard um, by residents between these poorly insulated walls, for instance. Australia is pretty new to high-rise living at this scale. So some of those norms uh, might be elsewhere presumed to be reasonably settled. And as I said, renters here are blamed for a lot of the inconveniences and the incursions and the property breaches. But I also find plenty of contradictions and inconsistencies. But I think that condos, condo renters certainly are at risk of hostility and discrimination and scapegoating. And these dynamics really reflect and reproduce the tenure biases that, that undermine renters' capacity to feel at home. And I should add, like, a lot of this detail isn't necessarily unique to the high-rise, but I make the point that density and height and the particular design and build issues um, that stem from the political economies of high-rise in this kind of post-GFC period really make them quite a lot more likely in uh, in the condo and that their fallout is, is a lot more acute. And just as a final point, I think a lot of these outcomes can't be kind of unyoked from the legal arrangements themselves that, from the condo um, legislation. Some of the negative assessments of condo uh, have been blamed on the political, economic and social uh, systems that they operate within, rather than on the condo ownership and the governance systems themselves. But I'm, I think I'm somewhat wary of that view on the basis that law is this kind of mediating institution that uh, ties together the politics and the economics Um, And it's law and the legal instruments that are giving shape to those relations uh, between politics and the economy at every point. 
Uh, and I think as more renters enter the condo, as, as they're set to do in Australia, as our rates of renting rise, the condominium's kind of early model of this community of, of owners really becomes ever more tenuous. And this relative exclusion of renters, uh, at least from and from formal governance, is really quite troubling. Uh, my book's conclusion kind of reflects on some of these risks. Uh, some of them are kind of design and planning issues, uh, but certainly some of them are legal and kind of tenure-related issues that that we can, you know, that we've got to get our heads around um, as cities grow taller and rates of renting, you know, are on the rise. Excellent. Well, uh, and we didn't even get to build to rent, so that's a conversation for another time perhaps. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us for this Festival of Urbanism and City Road Podcast Book Club. It really was great having you along. Make sure you check out the City Road Podcast website for other conversations just like this at cityroadpod.org. And we've got a couple of last interviews coming for you next week. See you then.